A jury in Oakland County delivered a verdict this week that kicks the American justice system into new territory. Jennifer Crumbly is the mother of the shooter who killed four of his classmates and injured seven other people at Oxford High in 2022. At the time, he was 15 years old. You might remember from her son's sentencing, prosecutors showed Jennifer Crumbly and her husband gave their son the handgun used in the shooting as an early Christmas present. During a meeting with school counselors about concerns regarding their son, they refused to take him home from school the day of the shooting, even when school staff were asking them to. He had a gun right there in his backpack during that meeting. The shooter is already serving a life sentence for the murders of those four young people. And now his mother, Jennifer Crumbly, faces prison time for involuntary manslaughter for her role in failing to prevent the shootings. This case is extremely unique in the national landscape. And over the next couple of days, we'll explain why. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Professor Eve Primus at the University of Michigan School of Law specializes in criminal defense matters. She's going to talk to us about why this does not happen very often, parents being held accountable for kids' gun crimes. Before we discuss the unique details of this case, would you mind just breaking down for us what involuntary manslaughter, the charge in this case, what that means for the layperson different from a murder charge? Yes. So involuntary manslaughter is a form of a homicide charge where an individual is accused of being grossly negligent in a way that reasonably foreseeably causes the resulting deaths. So what does that mean? It means there are two big legal standards that a prosecutor has to prove to make out an involuntary manslaughter charge. First, they have to show that in the context of the Crumbly case, that Jennifer Crumbly was grossly negligent, which is a standard that requires them to show more than carelessness, more than what we would typically or colloquially think of as negligent behavior. It has to be a willful disregard of the results that might follow from her act or her failure to act. So gross negligence has a sort of a wantonness component to it. It means she had to actually be aware of the risks that her son posed and be indifferent to those results. It's, it's a very high degree of culpability, higher than even recklessness. So that's one thing that has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And then the other thing that has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt is that um, she caused the deaths of the students through this gross negligence in a way that was reasonably foreseeable to her. So it's not enough if she thought that her son was troubled. It's not enough if she thought that her son needed help. It has to be the case that she was put on notice that her son was troubled enough that it was foreseeable he would do something this violent. How new is the idea that we might hold parents accountable for lethal shootings committed by their children in this way? Some people are calling this a first of its kind case. Would you agree? It is really a, a rare thing for a prosecutor to charge a parent with an act committed by their child that is a homicide offense, right? We see lots of circumstances where parents could be charged with some form of 
failing to secure a weapon properly or with some form of child neglect or child abuse with respect to how they treat their kids, but holding parents responsible for homicide based on the actions of a minor child, particularly a child who is already a teenager, not someone who is so young that they are incredibly easily controlled by the parents is really rare. It is a rare form of criminal charge. We know from the jury selection process that several of the jurors in this case were gun owners. Some were hunters. Does it signify anything to you that prosecutor Karen McDonald was able to get a guilty verdict with that particular group of Michiganders? Um, I mean, it depends. Just because you own a gun, it doesn't necessarily dictate what your views will be about gun ownership and gun storage, right? You could have someone who owns a gun who feels very strongly that guns are an important part of life, but that they have to be secured in a certain way and have very strict safety protocols toward who to give guns to and how to supervise their use. You could have other individuals who own guns who have guns as a prevalent part of their lives in ways that don't involve as much security. So I don't know that Gun ownership is uh, a binary circumstance that would be necessarily for or against the prosecution in this case. This trial was, of course, solely for the shooter's mother, Jennifer Crumbly. His father, James Crumbly, is set to face a jury in a separate court case in March. Do you think there's anything that can be inferred from this case for what may lay ahead for James Crumbly? Well, I think that we learned in this case that Jennifer Crumbly said that her husband was the one who was more responsible for the storage of the weapon in a way that suggested that he might have more direct liability or exposure with respect to how the weapon was stored. But they're separate cases. And so, you know, in a criminal case, you've got to show a guilty mens rea, a guilty mind, that gross negligence standard with respect to the individual being charged. So some of the text messages that were between Ethan and his mother, if they, you know, if they were only between Ethan and his mother and the father wasn't aware of them, they might inform her mindset, but they might not inform his. So, I mean, obviously, the fact that the prosecution was able to get a guilty verdict with respect to her will embolden them in thinking that they have that possibility with respect to the husband. But they will be different trials with different evidence about what the defendants knew and what risks they were aware of and were consciously disregarding. So I wouldn't say that a guilty verdict in one is necessarily an indicator of how the other will turn out. A case that's rare, that has unique features, such as this chain of communications between a shooter and his parents, a rare case is not the same thing exactly as a precedent-setting case. Would you expect to see, as someone whose who's field is uh, criminal defense and the training of criminal defense attorneys, what kinds of things do you expect we might see in the future for other kinds of mass shootings when the shooter is a, is a minor? I do think you're right that there is a difference between a case that involves uh, the application of a standard like gross negligence to particular facts and a precedent that somehow changes the law. Nothing about the verdict in this case changes the law, um, nor does it change the burden of proof that a prosecutor has in every criminal case to establish beyond a reasonable doubt 
that a parent is grossly negligent and that their gross negligence reasonably foreseeably led to the kind of harm that their minor child imposed. That said, it wouldn't surprise me if the verdict, you know, I think it would be naive to say the verdict won't embolden some prosecutors to think that these kinds of cases are possible. Um, but I, I do think that there are reasons to think that the Crumbly case is a little bit different and unique on its facts. I mean, you have here a situation where um, there were not only were there text messages between Ethan and his mother specifically about his mental state and the things that he was thinking about the house being haunted, et cetera. But you also have the meeting with the guidance counselors and the school the morning of the shooting um, that gives the crumbly parents a little bit more notice than you might have in other cases. In any case, the prosecutor is going to have to look and see, can I prove beyond reasonable doubt that this parent actually was put on notice that their child posed this level of danger to other people such that they disregarded that known risk? And that's hard. Um, so I don't see this as opening the floodgates to a ton of additional prosecutions. I think the facts in each case have to be analyzed separately. The, it remains a difficult charge to prove, even if the prosecutor was able to do it in this particular circumstance. We need to break for a moment. More on Jennifer Crumbly's conviction after that. We'll be right back. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, the criminal negligence on which this whole case hung. Can you say a little bit more, Eve, about how courts have, have defined criminal negligence? And I mean, this is, this is something that it feels like has to, get, has to get proved in every single case of its kind in a slightly different manner. How, how, would, you, how would you describe it in layperson's terms? Yes. So I think most people, when you use the word negligence, people think, oh, there's something that you should have done that you didn't do. That makes you negligent. And that's right when we're talking about concepts of civil negligence. Like, you know, if I go into a store, a grocery store, and the floor is incredibly slippery and the store owner hasn't put up signs to notify me that the floor is wet and slippery and I fall, it might be that the store has negligently breached a duty that it owes to me as a patron at the store to let me know of a dangerous condition that exists. And in civil law, that basic form of negligence is often enough to require people to pay money damages if they inflict injury on somebody else by virtue of being negligent, of not doing something that they had a duty to do. 
criminal law is different in the following sense. In the criminal system, when we find someone guilty of a crime, the punishment is to take away their liberty. It's a much more serious punishment. And as a result, the criminal system says that people in, for the most part in the criminal system have to have a guilty mind. They have to satisfy what we call a mens rea, um, a, a culpable mindset. And for a homicide charge, which is one of the most severe charges in our criminal system, that means something more than simple negligence. So for involuntary manslaughter, the term is gross negligence. In many respects, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer because when people hear gross negligence, the word negligence brings up that sense of you should have known better, when in reality, a gross negligence standard actually is higher than the simply you should have known better. It's more than careless. There's actually a willful component to gross negligence in the criminal law. It means this, when I say wantonness, it means like that you are, you know that there is a risk of this kind of harm and you are indifferent to the results that you fail to do something um, to stop Ethan knowing that the result could be this kind of serious physical injury. And so that's a level of when we call it gross negligence. What we're saying is it's not just that you should have known better. It's that you actually were consciously aware of this possibility and you just disregarded it like you were indifferent to it in a way that shows in the criminal law what we would call wantonness, like that makes you really criminally, morally responsible in a way that deserves the deprivation of liberty. So I actually think it, it, it's higher than most people would think just by hearing the phrase gross negligence. Eve, I know that the, we may not know for years the, the importance of this case, but I wonder if we could take a minute to talk a little bit about how the justice system has in our lifetime traditionally viewed teenagers who are accused of extremely violent crimes. If this door is now open because of because of one of the Crumley verdicts, would you expect would you expect that courts might start to think differently or that juries might to start start to think differently about the accountability of the adults in young people's lives? There's sort of two parts to that question in my mind. The first is the frequency with which we treat children as adults. So Ethan Crumbly was charged as an adult. I think it is common when there is a very violent crime um, for a lot of criminal systems to move kids into the adult system and treat them as though they have the ability to make those kinds of determinations. The interesting thing is that sort of the break here between treating Ethan Crumbly as an adult for purposes of his charges and then treating him as subject to his parents' control for the purposes of their charges. Um, so I do think, you know, parents, maybe parents will be scared uh, of these kinds of charges. But truth be told, I think it's hard to, to know that if you know your kid is capable of this kind of violence, I doubt the prospect of the criminal charge is the thing that you are going to be most concerned about. The real question is the line here between a parent who knows that their kid is troubled and a parent who should be held criminally responsible if their kid 
commit some atrocious act. And that's a very thin line um, that is being tested in these crumbly cases. Eve Primus is a professor of law at the University of Michigan School of Law and director of the Public Defender Training Institute. Eve, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Tomorrow on the podcast, you're going to hear from an Oxford High School student. Since the shooting, she's become an advocate for stricter gun control laws. And she's been following these trials. Stay tuned for that in your podcast feeds. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganpublic.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabensog, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our interns are Olivia Meradian and Lauren Neong. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.